If you would imagine with me that you have been given a book deal to write what will be the world's most widely read book. The purpose of this book will be to share with the world a message uh, to tell all humanity what it is that they most need to hear in order to set the world on the right path, the right course. What would you write about? What kind of book would you write? Well, God took just that opportunity, right? And the book that God gave us is by and large a story, a true story. Sure, it contains more than stories. It's got laws, it's got genealogies, it's got poems and prophecies, it's got letters. But by and large, the Bible is a big, long story. It puts J.R.R. Tolkien to shame so long. It's not a theology book. It's not a self-help book. It's not even a love letter. It's a story. Why? Why a story? Because God knows that we human beings need stories. We crave stories. Give us a lecture and we struggle to pay attention. Present information and, and threaten to test us on it. And, and we work hard. We have to work hard to, to study and to remember as much of it as we can. But tell us a good story and we almost can't not listen to it. It's stories which shape how we see the world. It's stories which shape how we see ourselves. It's stories which give our lives meaning. As some great thinkers have put it, we are storied creatures. This is how God has made us. It's how God has wired our brains. And this is why God has given us in the Bible a grand story. And so when Eugene Peterson was once asked, what's the purpose of a church service? He said, it's to get together and to retell and remember the biblical story. Well, that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. We're going to remember the forest through the trees and to trace the big storyline of the Bible. In this case, we're going to focus on the Old Testament because that's the part of the story we probably don't know as well. And we need to know it in order to understand the New Testament. And so each week over the next six weeks, we'll look at another chapter of the Old Testament story. And, and not, not chapters as in chapters and verses in the Bible, but the big broad chapters of the Old Testament story. The way we'll do it is we're going to borrow an acronym created by another Bible teacher, Carol Kaminsky, and it goes like this. Casket. It's a little morose, I know, but hang in there. We'll explain. C is for creation. A is for Abraham, S is for Sinai, K is for kings, E is for exile, T is for temple. Casket, because all of it leads up to Jesus, who of course was laid, so to speak, in a casket, in a tomb, right at the climax of the whole story. And so this story is preparation for that. It's preparation for Jesus, and we'll end this series as we come up to Christmas, and it will prepare us during the season of Advent to remember the coming of Christ. We begin today with creation, C. Every good story begins by setting the scene and introducing the main characters. In the case of the biblical story, we also learn 
how we got here, how the universe got here, why God created the world, and what it was meant to be like. We learn what went wrong. We learn why the world is not as we sense it ought to be. Isn't that amazing that all of that is packed into the first three chapters of the Bible? What profound storytelling. So let's remember the story. In the beginning, God decided to create, to make something wonderful, something big, something beautiful, to make something amazing and powerful, to make something good. And so God spoke. God spoke into what was chaos and darkness and uninhabitable emptiness, and God made light, God made order, God made a home. A home for God and a home for other creatures to be with God. So looking at this chart, first from bottom to top and then from left to right, first God separated out, bottom left hand quadrant, light from darkness, day from night. God made time and rhythm and God separated out then, second, earth from heaven. And then... Third, God separated out dry land from sea. That's what God did on the first three days, bringing creation from chaos, order from disorder, like forming a jumbled mess into rooms and spaces fit for habitation. Then on the next three days, God filled those empty spaces, looking at the right-hand column now, giving them purpose and function. God furnished each, God equipped each space, each room in this grand cosmic house. So God filled the day and the night with stars and planets to mark out time, to give us seasons and rhythms. And God filled the heavens with birds and with other winged creatures. And God filled the seas with fish and with creatures of the sea. And then God filled the land with animals. And then best of all, God made us, human beings, the crown of his creation Male and female. Us, God made in God's own image so that we are able to create as well, able to reason, able to think, able to feel, able to decide and to choose. Able to relate to God and to communicate with God and to receive and understand communication from God. And God made us to be in charge of the creation, to take care of it, to work to make it a home and to enjoy it as we then on the seventh day at the very top join God in taking time to rest in the world God has made. And so that's the beginning in a nutshell. And in the beginning, everything was good, very good, God says. So we have God, we have creation, we have man and woman, and all are living in harmony together enjoying God's creation. That's the vision that we're given right in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 then pictures this as a luxurious garden, and God walks in the garden with humanity in the evening. At the center of the garden is a tree of life. God wants the best for his creatures. He wants us to have life, to have a good life. But then trouble begins. Into the picture comes a cunning serpent. Where did it come from? How did it find its way into God's good creation. 
Well, we aren't told yet, though Genesis 1 did tell us that there was chaos before there was creation. And perhaps this serpent, which in the ancient world was known as a chaos creature, a representative of chaos, perhaps it embodies in some way the darkness and the chaos trying to slither its way back into God's good creation. Well, this servant points out that while humanity has everything we could ever want, there's one thing we do not have. One thing that God is trying to deny us, the serpent suggests. What is it? The knowledge of good and evil. Because there's a second tree in the center of the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, don't eat from that tree. It's poison. (laughs) It will kill you. If you eat of it, you'll surely die. But the serpent says, you won't. You won't surely die. God's tricking you. God's trying to deprive you of the right to decide for yourselves how to get along, how to function in God's creation. God doesn't want you to be free. God doesn't want you to reason out for yourselves what should be good and what should be bad. But, but wouldn't you be more like God if you did? Wouldn't you be more God-like? If you could do this for yourself, then rather, having to, rather than always having to rely on God to tell you these things and to trust his advice, isn't God constraining you and denying you and disrespecting you and holding you back from your full potential? And so the man and the woman, they begin to doubt God's goodness and to consider their own possibilities. And they take the fruit of this tree. They seize for themselves the right to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. This is the original sin. Not lust, not sex, not desire to satisfy our appetites, but the pride and the self-sufficiency which says, we're pretty smart. We can figure it out ourselves. We don't need God to tell us what's good and what's evil. And isn't that what society is still doing today? Well, that's the choice we made. And what was the result of going down this path of figuring things out for ourselves? Well, it didn't work out so well for us, and it still doesn't. In Genesis 3, we see that the relationships that God had woven together into creation begin to fray. Relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with the creation, even the relationship within ourselves. Within our own hearts, within our own psyches, security is replaced by shame. In our relationships with one another, intimacy is replaced by mistrust and blame. And because we're kings and queens over God's creation, the creation suffers as a result of our bad leadership because we listen to the serpent rather than guarding the creation from the serpent. And so the creation is cursed and it begins to fray and to slide back toward chaos. Then we're cast out of God's presence. We're separated from God and life is replaced with the prospect of struggle and death. Wow, all that in the first three chapters. We've... We've learned how we got here. We've learned what our purpose is in relation to the world around us, how life is meant to work, what has gone wrong and why it's gone wrong. God knows how to tell a story. Well, then as the story continues, we see humanity spiral downward as we make decision after decision without God, apart from God's will, choosing for ourselves what's good and evil, taking for ourselves the right to be masters of our own destiny and to judge right and wrong. 
So first, Cain decides it would be best to kill his brother Abel. Then Lamech brags to his two wives that he's killed a younger man for hurting him. That'll teach the guy. And after this, humanity's wickedness just grows and grows, and there's violence and there's oppression until it's so bad, God's heart is so pained that he's made us, and God decides that a fresh start is needed. And God washes the creation clean with a great flood, preserving a seed, though, in the form of Noah and his family and two of each animal in an ark. And then God plants that seed anew in a, in a new creation. But as it turns out, the seed was infected with the disease of the old creation. And Noah's family just brought it with them on the ark into the new beginning. And so before we know it, as the story continues, we're at the Tower of Babel where this first chapter of the biblical story ends. And humanity's gathered together. They're as wicked as ever. They've made life oppressive. Destruction is rampant. And they're harnessing technology to build a great city and a tall tower so that they can be great, so that they can make a name for themselves on their own terms apart from God. And so God, in God's mercy, thwarts their plans and scatters their building project. But that's just a band-aid solution. It, it doesn't solve the ultimate problem. So what will God do? Well, we'll find out next week when we get to the second part of the story, right? <laughs> um, but, but even in the first chapter of the story, we get a hint of how God will respond. Because each time so far that humanity took another step of rebellion away from God, God always responded by bringing consequences, yes, but also by having mercy and offering a chance for a new beginning. First, when, when the, the first humans ate the fruit and they grasped their own power and their own freedom to decide good and evil as they saw fit, God disciplined them, but God didn't take their life, at least right away. God gave them mercy. Second, God promised them that one day the woman's seed, the woman's descendants, would crush the seed of the serpent. As the story continues, we'll have to see how that promise plays out, and we'll have to keep track in the story of who the woman's seed, the woman's descendants are, and who the serpent's descendants are, and what each is like. Third, when Cain killed his brother Abel, God spared Cain's life and even offered Cain a measure of protection from anyone who would try to kill him. Then fourth, when God brought the flood, God saved Noah's family and the animals, God's creatures. And then fifth, after the flood, God made a solemn promise, a covenant never again to destroy the earth. So five times already in the story, God gave humanity second chances. God gave them mercy again and again and again. In fact, there are, there are genealogies included in these early stories after the creation, and we tend to skip over them because we want to get on with the story, but they play a very important role because these genealogies trace God's preservation of the seed of the woman from Adam and Eve to Abel, but then Cain kills Abel. So then the line goes from Adam and Eve uh, to their next son, Seth, and to his descendants, and later down to Enoch, who we learn walked with God, and then later to Noah, and then to his son, Shem. So God is being faithful so far to his promise, preserving a seed from the woman, despite everything that humans are doing to his creation. 
Next week, we'll find out in part two if, if that continues. But in the time we have left this morning, let's continue or let's consider what the story has told us so far. What has the creation story told us? To do this, let's realize that there are three basic characters, you could call them categories, in the Old Testament story. There's God, there are people, and there's the land. Or as, as we see them at creation, there's the creator who creates everything. There's the creation, everything God creates. And then there's humanity who are part of that creation but are unique in the sense that we are made in God's own image and we've been given a leadership role over the creation. So God, the people, and the land. And, and these three categories give us a lens which helps us to see some very important, very fundamental truths that the creation story is teaching us about reality, about life, and about the way things are. So first, we see first that God as creator is both uh, powerful and creative. Second, the people who are God's creatures, made in God's own image, um, that they're made in God's image. And, and what does it mean that they're made in God's image? It's that we, we uniquely show the world and we are in the world as a reflection uh, and a reminder of what God is like, what the creator is like. Like God, we are glorious. And yet, unlike God, we are weak and we are fallible. And ultimately, it turns out we are flawed. And then third, the creation around us also exists to give glory to God. We also see that God is sovereign. God is ruler over all. God is powerful and having a purpose for what God has made. And that we as humans were supposed to be vice regents with God, his assistants in ruling the creation, but we turned rebels instead. And so the creation that God told us to rule has been brought through our leadership into the mess of our rebellion. Next, we see that God is good intelligent, wise, creative, beautiful, and that we were created good, but we became corrupted. And so as John Calvin so wonderfully put it, we are glorious ruins. Glorious ruins. We humans were paradoxes, right? We, we still contain vestiges of glory, but we're also badly marred. And so the creation was created good, but was brought under the curse as a result of humanity's rebellion, and so it groans and it suffers along with us. We also see that God is a lawgiver, commanding and instructing humanity about how to best live in God's creation. That's why the Old Testament is the first religion we know of to teach ethical monotheism, which is a big theological word, but when you break it down, monotheism just means one God. And ethical means that this God cares about what we do, the choices we make, good and bad. Most pagan gods, you have to understand, by contrast, they didn't care how people lived as long as people offered them the requisite sacrifices. But while God is good and right and teaches us and commands us as to how we should live, we as humans are disobedient and rebellious. We're self-centered rather than God-centered. And meanwhile, the rest of creation does obey God. It follows the laws of nature that God set up. And so it still points to God and gives God glory. And so next we see God is a righteous judge. If we could have the next slide. 
making good and just judgments about our choices and our behaviors. God does what is right. God rules and judges in ways that are wise and fair and good. While humanity actually deserves God's judgment for rebelling against God and ruining God's creation. And the poor creation suffers God's judgment through no fault of its own, but rather as a result of our fault and the poor leadership we've exercised over the creation. But the good news is that God, from the beginning, we see is faithful and merciful and promise-giving and a covenant-making God. And all along the way, there are people like Adam and Eve, or uh, rather um, Abel and Enoch and Noah, seeds of Adam and Eve, seeds of the woman, who walk with God and who trust God, even while the serpent seeds, people like Cain and Lamech and the builders of Babel go on rebelling against God. And God makes promises to these descendants of the woman. God makes covenants with them, with Eve, later with Noah. And so the creation gets to endure and remains a place for us to call home. And so there's hope, not only for humanity, but for the creation. And so we see already at the beginning of the story that God is a savior, a saving God. God promises to one day raise up a seed from the woman to defeat the serpent. And God saves that seed through the flood, not giving up on humanity, though they rebel against God again and again and again. God also saves the creation, his creatures on the ark with Noah. And so notice that God's goal from the beginning isn't just to save human souls from his creation, but rather to save us as humans for the sake of saving the creation as well. God as a savior wants to save and to restore and to renew both the people and the land that God's created. To save the people in order to save the land. And so in the Bible, we're never just saved from something. We're always also saved for something. For the sake of ourselves, yes, because God loves us so much, but we're also saved for the sake of others and we're saved for the sake of the creation that God has made. And so in the end, we'll see We'll have to see how this plays out, but by the end, God makes all things new and makes a new creation. Spoiler alert, should have given you. <laughs> but for now, that's the beginning of the story. It tells us so much. And so question for yourself personally, what did you most need to hear from the story this morning? What part of the story speaks to you this morning? I'd encourage you this week to, to spend some time reflecting further on that part of the story. You know, the whole thing is only 11 chapters right at the beginning of Genesis. You could read it and fairly easily find the part that speaks to you that you need to reflect on this week, and I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. God, we look out at the world and there are so many voices telling us what it all means how it all got here, where it's all headed, what we should do about it, how we should view ourselves. I thank you so much that you have spoken into that situation and answered those questions in a definitive way. We thank you for this story which you've given us, which is your telling of the history of our universe, your telling of 
human history. I pray that it would shape, that it would get down into the fabric of our identity, of who we are as individuals and as a people. That we would come to know who we are in light of you. That we would come to understand what's wonderful about this world, what's wrong with this world, and what our role is in cooperating with you to see it redeemed and restored. May this story shape all of who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.